Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today, I have a, a friend of mine who I've been part of the, the journey of for a, quite a long time now. Uh, we were both uh, associates and junior VCs uh, roughly around the same time, and we won- both went to the same university. Davor Hebel of Eight Road Ventures is leading one of the funds here in Europe that deals with later stage investments. And we're going to explore the idea of later stage investments and what it takes to really stand out for that kind of investor. But before we go there, let's go with what we usually like to do, which is the background. Now, Davor's got a very interesting background. He's Croatian and he left uh, Croatia after the Civil War uh, when he was age 17 to go to study in the United States. And I think that adds an interesting element to an, a European uh, investor who was also an entrepreneur, uh, but was trained in the States. And we'll cover all this, uh, but from your point of view, share with us a little bit about what it was like moving from Croatia to the United States to study your undergrad in, in computer science. Sure. Uh, thanks, Carlos, and good to be here. Um, so I left when I was 17. Uh, at that time, Croatia was just going through a transition from a communist socialist state towards a kind of a more market-based econ- economy. And uh, coming to the U.S., I actually started first as an exchange student for one year in California and then moved to do my, to do my undergrad. And I was just quite enamored by the capitalist society that I've experienced in the U.S., uh, you can imagine that uh, as part of communism, most of myself and my friends were tended to be equals. There wasn't really a huge amount of sort of uh, division between the different folks. And coming to the U.S., uh, where sort of private economy, uh, people talking about entrepreneurship, ownership of companies, it was quite a, a liberating and, and quite a fascinating experience. So one of the things that I want to come back to is how the evolution of the European ecosystem has affected you know, Croatia and other countries in Eastern Europe. And from an investor's point of view, like what that environment looks like today. But it's great to hear, you know, that you come from there and that that's something you can add to how you work with founders. When you were at uh, ASU and you studied CS, what were the key things that sort of drove you to to want to study in this in this sector before effectively it was a big thing. And what was that first sort of experience after graduation that you did that sort of took you down the path you're in right now? Well, actually I didn't want to study computer science, to be honest. I wanted to originally study economics and I took uh, one computer science course in my first semester in school. And I just loved the fact that you could apply your kind of logic and mathematical skills to actually create things with you know your own two hands, obviously in a virtual environment, but nevertheless, it was something that I uh, didn't really have appreciation for. So, um, you know, very, very quickly, uh, you know, uh, shortly after I started taking computer science courses, internet started becoming a thing. And then, you know, creating your own websites and and being able to communicate with the world became something, uh, again, that was just so fascinating for me. and uh, uh, you know, very quickly became clear, and, and to your point, I don't think there was any ever, ever a top-down way of thinking, sort of, technology is going to be big, so I'm going to do it. It was more, I just love uh, you know, programming and, and thinking about problems and solving problems, and computer science was just a great place where you can apply some of those skill sets. And you ended up applying those in Germany 
after you graduated, was that? Yeah, so I, I spent uh, one semester in, in Germany, uh, again as an exchange student in, in uh, outside of Hamburg, and I spent some time working for an, a new online department at Heinrich Bauer Verlag in Hamburg. And it was a time, again, of 336K modems, where we were building, you know, kind of transitioning uh, all the magazines that the, the publishing house had online. Um, I actually programmed one of their first games on their website where you could play Trivial Pursuit. Um, and uh, again, it was it was a brave new world. It was it was you know really, it was kind of a, I think online was a was a, it was a really small piece of all of these companies at the time, mm. uh, you know, full of hackers and and aficionados. So you were definitely exposed in that enough to want to come back and get a master's in information systems. What was the first thing? This is at Carnegie Mellon, but yeah. one of the things that you you did right after that was uh, an internship at an mm -hmm. IT company. Walk us through that fellowship. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was lucky enough that um, uh, in applying to Carnegie Mellon, I got a fellowship to do my master's. I mean, partially, uh, you know, one of the issues uh, I had is, you know, paying for school as an international student wasn't easy. So, I effectively was looking for scholarships throughout my studies, and I uh, was fortunate to get one at Carnegie Mellon. That also involved working for an IT company for about a year, working for the CEO and the CIO on some of the strategic IT projects, all while studying at Carnegie Mellon um, and also, also taking some distance learning courses from Columbia. And you know, again, the, the, the key thing for me was that I love technology, but I started to think that really the power of technology is really by marrying it with the business concepts. And so the, the, the program that I entered at, at Carnegie Mellon was information systems management. So there was a core component of technology, a core component of business, and a core component of regular, sort of regulatory over kind of framework. Um, and, and that was really where I started to think that, you know, I wanted to have a career where technology was a big component of it, but I also wanted the business to be a big component of it. And is that what ultimately led you to go to McKinsey or is that, was that a compromise? Yeah. Look, I, it, it was a very difficult time uh, back in, this was sort of 1999, 2000 timeframes, you'll, you'll remember. It was the, then it was really the go-go days of the internet. And uh, I, was, I was fortunate to get an offer from McKinsey, but also had a number of offers from, from startups, uh, kind of e-business consulting startups like Scient, Viant, you'll, you'll remember some of the names. And it was very tempting to enter the world of, of, of startups back then, because really you felt that the sky was the limit. Uh, in the end, uh, it felt like, again, continuing to build on this technology and business, you know, McKinsey was going to give me probably a good compromise sort of between the both because uh, I entered a, 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 an office called Business Technology Office where we were doing, you know, we were working on strategic topics but also for the CIO of large companies. So it, was, it felt like a good compromise and, and one where, uh, I, you know, very shortly thereafter, it felt like it was very clear that it was the right decision for me. One of the interesting things about McKinsey or any kind of consulting job, especially uh, as you become a, an investor afterwards, is that there's a, a preconceived notion that consultants know everything. You know, they, they have a view and, and they've studied tons of companies and they have frameworks and the McKinsey framework for this and that. But you actually hit a wall when you went back for your MBA and started your own company and you had to reconcile that which you knew as a consultant with the realities of entrepreneurship. Walk us through what was that like, the, the company that you started uh, yeah. in Croatia for tourist attractions. Yeah. Sure. So, 
you know, just before I went to business school, I spent a bit of time opening a McKinsey office in, in Croatia. And a buddy of mine and I had an idea that, you know, as two successful consultants, how hard can it be to be successful entrepreneurs? Um, and decided to set up a company um, opening tourist attractions around the coast of Croatia. So something that is innovative uh, and unique. Uh, and we felt like, you know, applying our entrepreneurial sort of energies is, is the right thing to do. And as you said, um, you know, very quickly uh, we started realizing that just being a good consultant and being able to problem solve, you know, in a, in a room on a whiteboard and actually getting things done. Uh, and that is, you know, in, in our case, there was a real estate component to it. So, so actually, you know, working with you know, the builders, the, the, the construction company, the, the local, uh, 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 you know, uh, kind of a, uh, offices and, and bureaus to, to get permissions, uh, uh, you know, hiring and managing local uh, workforce, oftentimes young, you know, graduates. Um, it, it just really alerted me to the fact that whereas I thought I knew a lot about business, I actually knew very little about the business. And uh, it almost started like a completely new, I call it sort of the renewed process of learning from ground up that, you know, how do you actually get things done? Uh, I think the McKinsey experience is certainly valuable in the ability to, again, think about problems in a structured way. So in, in many ways, it's a, it's a, it's a good you know, training ground, but I realized there's so much more, you know, so much more uh, in addition to the to the basic principles of consulting that that I needed to learn, and 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 some of that was effectively you know driven my my decision not to go back to consulting after business school. Mm. Walk us through a little bit more of that experience with that startup. Uh, you mentioned how it was difficult to get uh, contractors, and you see a lot of the relationships that an Uber is doing these days, where they're you know walking that fine line between what is a contractor, what's an employee. Walk us through some of the, the challenges that you see some of the companies you're working with today uh, and how you reconcile some of those challenges with the ones that you went through and how you help them through those. Mm -hmm. Our startup, um, you know, we, we, we didn't probably have a huge amount of insight as to how difficult it is to actually scale a business at a time. Um, so we focused mostly on getting the project up and running, you know, and I kind of you know, compare that to someone just focusing on getting the platform up and running. So the day before opening of our tourist attraction, we had a Croatian president come and cut the ribbon and we had a big fanfare. We had a, a famous celebrity do a kind of piano concert on top of our tourist attraction. And then the following day, we began to trade and we started realizing that actually we knew nothing about running a tourist attraction. And uh, oftentimes reminds me how now when we talk about startups and people oftentimes think about, you know, if I can just get this product out the door, then I'm, I'm home free. And, and part of it, I guess, you know, what we'll talk about later, what we focus on is really, that's just the beginning. Because then once you are in the market, you have to figure out how to really scale. And just to give you a small example, uh, you know, we launched a tourist attraction, but we had no relationships in the local market with tourist agencies, with tour operators, with hotels who would actually send us traffic. Lonely Planet and the likes did not actually list a tourist attraction. Uh, uh, you know, all of that takes, you know, sometimes years for people to pick it up, you know, including the next release of their, their guide. 
Um, so we, we, you know, we were so fast in getting this this tourist attraction open. Then we were so fast that actually we surprised ourselves as to when we opened it. Then we had to we had to figure out how to scale. And and oftentimes, you know, look at some of the startups and say, you know, don't worry as much about just getting the product right. I mean, obviously that's a big milestone, but you have to start thinking about some of the steps afterwards, way way before uh, it's time. Was it after this experience that you felt that investing was really more something of your interest or did you fall into that by accident? In hindsight, um, it was a, a kind of a probably a serendipitous uh, event. I, I, I felt like uh, I knew about VC. Um, I met a few guys uh, when I was at Harvard uh, who came and did, it, you know, did talks and talked about VC and I'm, I'm sure you've, you've sort of heard the same. You know, there was one guy I think was from Kleiner Perkins who came and said, listen, here's how you get into VC. It's very simple, you know, go set up a company, build it, sell it for a billion dollars, and then we're going to hire you as an ex-partner in a venture firm. And, uh, you know, a lot of people in the U.S., uh, you know, continue to become VCs after they become at least successful entrepreneurs. And so I thought there really is no kind of a road to being a VC. And at the same time, I thought VC had you know, a number of different elements that I really loved. Technology, business and strategy, and entrepreneurship. So it was sort of these three elements that it united, and I thought, hmm, this was, this was always something that, that sounded compelling. So when I, moved, when I came to, the, to London, and London felt like a potentially good compromise between going back home and staying in the US, and at that time, you'll remember immigration laws were very, very favorable for folks like like you and I. Um, I had, you know, you know, I got a lot of great traction from a number of VC firms at that time. It was still very early days, and and there were not that many people who had, you know, relevant knowledge or even desire, frankly, you know, to get into VC. So, you know, 2005, you know, more than 11 years ago, I said, uh, I met a few folks, and and Fidelity sounded like a uh, you know, a great platform at the time because it was very, very small. I was effectively number, you know, person number two. We had a, a you know, long-standing franchise in the U.S. Uh, with people who knew how to do venture capital. You know, that was one of the important elements for me, is to, you know, kind of realize that actually venture capital is not an easy thing to do. Uh, so you wanted to learn from the best, and you know, we had a, a number of partners at the time in the U.S. that I could learn from. Mm. If we jump around a little bit on the chronology and go straight to what Eight Roads is today, maybe we just um, help our audience understand what kind of investments you look at. And obviously, when you when you started, you were at Fidelity, which is now Eight Roads. Mm -hmm. But maybe walk us through how that evolved into what is Eight Roads and what's changed such that it is now Eight Roads. But sure. more importantly, what it is the focus investment focus? Sure. I think it's, it's actually pretty, you know, simple. Uh, there are two phases of our existence. Uh, the first one was uh, Fidelity Ventures, which is the company I joined. We had the U.S. and European presence uh, through 2009, and in 2009, 2010, um, we uh, effectively started asking ourselves the question of, "Hey, we are relatively small in Europe. Is there a bigger opportunity in Europe?" And we did a bunch of analysis and concluded that actually we feel pretty excited about Europe. Um, we made a similar move uh, over in Asia in 2000, uh, actually no, it's 1995. 
uh, one of our uh, uh, partners moved over to, to, to China and set up our presence there. And in 1999, we were an early investor in Alibaba. So that worked out pretty well. And, you know, we, we felt that, hey, it's better to be early right, than to be late. And so in 2010, we launched the first real European fund exclusively focused on, call it scale-up companies of Europe. Um, with the thesis being that there are a number of companies in kind of that Series B stage, so post-product market fit, as well as bootstrap companies that maybe have never raised capital, but that have global aspirations. And that we as Eight Roads can come and effectively find those entrepreneurs, irrelevant where they are, not just London or Berlin or Stockholm, but really find them anywhere, like in Hamburg or Prague, and then help them scale globally through our knowledge of the US, through our knowledge of Asia, and through our knowledge of scaling up companies. So, and that was the sort of the beginning. You know, today we're about 10 investment professionals uh, with, you know, uh, well-versed in a number of European languages, you know, French, German, uh, uh, Swedish, and so on and so forth, covering, you know, all the relevant sectors from consumer technologies, enterprise technologies, fintech. So that journey has been an ongoing one. And during that time, the concept of a scale-up has changed quite a bit as well. Because that word, similar to Series A, Series B, is always under flux, maybe you can walk us through what today qualifies as a scale-up in your eyes. Hmm. Look, I think, it's a, um, you know, I think it's a different thing to different people. Uh, for, for us, we, 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 simplify, we simply look at it and say, you know, we like to see, find companies they have some early proof points that the model works. And that is usually, you know, to use the sort of, you know, probably as people talk about product market fit on your podcast quite a bit, but to see, see some real revenues kind of that are actually repeatable. So in the, in, the, in the world of software, oftentimes we say, you know, a couple of million of revenue with kind of a, a, a proof points of the sales model and the go-to-market model. In the consumer uh, companies, again, it's about understanding, you know, having a product and understanding which marketing channels are starting to scale. So that is for me the, the beginning. You know, usually in terms of number of people, we're talking 30 to 50 oftentimes, you know, and, you know, some of the big hairy problems have been kind of addressed, you know, so you actually do have a product and you feel like it's has meet some need in the market. You have hired a nucleus of your team. Uh, you probably have not just the CEO, but a couple of other senior folks in, in your company. Um, and sometimes you might even have, uh, you know, presence in multiple markets, you know, but usually you're just starting to think about, okay, so how do I, you know, how do I go bigger in the case of new technologies, which is one of our investments, you know, Emil, the CEO moved to the US, to the Valley as part of our investment round. In the case of Apps Flyer, uh, which is an Israeli company, they had one office when we invested a couple of years ago. Now they have 13 offices around the around the world. So it's really the beginning of that that proper proper scaling up of of, of the company uh, beyond you know one location and a small team and a, a, a early proof points. If if you look at some of the stats uh, that indicate that European M and A on average caps out in the low hundreds of millions. How does that affect how you invest and how you help your companies scale 
to materialize an exit that can move your capital because the expectations are likely that they will exceed the European M&A market. How do you manage and navigate that? I think it's a, one of the core, I think, principles of, uh, you know, we have set ourselves up to almost take advantage of um, some of those trends. So I think what we say to our entrepreneurs and, and you know, ultimately entrepreneurs are the one that make things happen and they are the ones ultimately who decide when is the right time to sell. Uh, so, you know, again, we were, we were both probably uh, heard a lot about the questions around, you know, do we sell out too early, etc. You know, I would have to say, you know, we had, we never encourage our entrepreneurs to sell. We support them in their decision to, to figure out when the timing is right. Uh, oftentimes, I think, you know, triple digit, uh, outcomes are very, very, um, call it, um, positive. Uh, in the case of Treatwell, which is the company we exited last year, originally called Wahanda, you know, there was a, call it a low triple digit, uh, you know, hundred and some million pound, uh, transaction. You know, it was very positive for everyone involved. And the company now is growing under the recruits leadership to a whole new, a uh, whole new level. Uh, we've just announced another deal uh, a couple of weeks ago with our uh, German company InnoGames, where again we've been investors for six years, helped scale company from 50 employees to 400 employees, and now the Swedish media company MTG uh, has invested and potentially will buy the company in sort of in the order of magnitude of 260 million euros. I mean, these are great outcomes. Uh, they are great outcomes because uh, they create the wealth for not just the founders, but also the management teams. Um, uh, in both cases, there is a significant upside component that the company can achieve over the next four to five years. So it de-risks the founders and the management team further, but then also there is a, a significant uh, upside component uh, to those deals. Um, and finally, you know, some of those companies, as long as the founders end up owning a decent enough chunk of the company, and in bootstrap cases, you know, oftentimes founders own 100% or close to 100%, you know, these transactions can actually be quite meaningful. So these are successful transactions that you were involved with, but let's look at it more from a macro point of view. There's only but so many investors like Eight Roads, and there's only so many options that a founder can go for for scale-up capital. Mm -hmm. And that scale of capital comes with strings in those strings being that once you take that capital, there's an expectation that the exit multiple has to be big enough to make it interesting for an eight roads. How does that marry with the, the European market versus, let's say, the American market? Does that shift, for example, how you leverage your the eight roads arm in the U.S. to make sure that more U.S. acquirers have visibility on your European deal flow to maximize returns? Or does it just all happen organically? In other words, how do you engineer these success stories, if at all? I mean, one thing I agree with you, you let the founder decide, but how do you assist in, in making these windows of opportunity available to the founder? Sure. So, uh, I mean, there are a couple of questions there. You know, one is around, you know, bringing the global platform and leveraging global platform. So, I would say increasingly acquires are not just US based, they're also Asia based. So uh, we definitely think as one of the core jobs for us is to continue to nurture a strong network in both of those geographies. Uh, again, if you, if you look at uh, you know, the US 
historically for certain sectors, I mean, it's been, you know, 80, 90% of the buyers have been coming from the US. So there's definitely no, no doubt that, uh, you know, we continue to cultivate some of those relationships. Uh, but then increasingly, you know, Asian buyers continue to be, you know, quite, uh, quite interested. So we are presence in Japan, uh, China, India. I think, you know, we, we try to cover those bases as well. Um, I think, you know, you also asked about this, you know, how do you, um, you know, there are some strings attached with, you know, venture capital money. And I think you're, you're right in some ways. Um, and if you look at the statistics of how many companies that are formed in the U.S. ever get venture capital funding in the U.S., it is a small subset of 1%. I think I heard something like one-sixth of 1% ever raise venture capital money. So, whereas on the other side, the number of companies that go public in the U.S. that are venture-backed is something like, at times, a quarter. Right, so you have this, you know, what venture capitalists are trying to do, especially in the early stages, I found, and you know, I have to find these rocket ships of, you know, companies that are really going to explode in, you know, new markets that are really, really fast growing. And uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, people don't realize that that is what venture capital world is. For us, it's a little bit different because when we come in, the company already has some critical mass of revenues. So even with, let's say, 50% competitive annual growth rate uh, from, say, $3 million, if you grow for six years at 50% compounded, the power of the compounding grows your company something like 12 times. So, you know, you start with $3 million, as long as you can grow 50% every year for six years, right, you know, you have a $40 million company. And that is a big, big difference, right, in terms of the kind of the, the, the value that you've created. Um, the earlier you go, right, I mean, people continue to look for really, really unusual situations where companies can grow much, much faster and grow into something much, much bigger, much, much faster. So, um, you know, certainly the founders have to ask themselves, you know, not just does this person have a fund that I can tap into, but also what is the kind of investment strategy that that fund has? Because the flip side is, you know, if you go with an early stage fund, the question is, you know, what, what if you're not one of those potential unicorns? You know, what happens when one day you realize that actually maybe you have an interesting company, but you're not scaling at the kind of rate that, that, that people are hoping for? Does that make the VC, you know, less inclined to invest the time and, and effort? So we try, to, we try to stay pretty concentrated. In the first fund, we have about 10 investments. In the second fund, we'll probably have 12 to 14 investments. So, you know, we, we tend to, you know, roll up our sleeves in the companies that we invest in and really, really help, try to help uh, as much as we can. So help drive to that outsized return, uh, IPO or otherwise, that, like you yeah. mentioned. But what's interesting about that is that at the entry point, some companies are probably easier to identify as a rocket ship. You know, if you, as you mentioned, if they're making two million revenue, you know that already in itself is a validator. But how about companies that are not valued by their revenue, but rather by their network effect? So, if we were to have Twitter today, and mind you, eliminate all the troubles that it's having recently, but just kind of the concept of a social network, where the latent value is the network effect, it is growing really quickly. How do you factor that in as a sort of scale-up investor? where, you know, actually you would almost 
kill the growth if you monetize too early. How do you value those kinds of businesses? Look, I think you, you know, I think Europe as a whole has struggled to recognize the power of these kind of platforms. So if you think about, you know, where is Twitter and where's Facebook and, and so on and so forth. Snapchat. Snapchat. You know, we have, you know, probably the one thing we can do better is recognize that for some businesses, to, you know, monetizing too early could potentially be a significant detriment and maybe even death. Uh, so we are an investor in a company called Wallapop out of Spain, and it's an interesting story of uh, uh, you know a, Spanish, a couple of Spanish entrepreneurs who now built the largest mobile classifieds business in Spain, way way bigger than some of the incumbents, and and you know this is sort of you know, you take a picture of your item. Uh, and, and people in sort of the hyper-local radius of a mile or so then kind of look, look for, those, uh, for those, those items and, and you transact. So it's the modern version of, call it the, the garage sale on, on mobile. Um, and, you know, when we invested, uh, it was all about just building the, the most liquidity in the platform because uh, in many ways, you know, we've seen the classified playbook, you know, we know classifieds well. So what is clear in this particular case is, you know, once you have the density of of transactions, you know, number of daily listings and number of daily listers, and and you've built that kind of both sides of that marketplace, then you have a very very defensible sustainable business. And uh, I would say even today, I mean, the company has already raised you know, uh, uh, you know, quite a bit of capital. Uh, you know, we've we've merged a U.S. business with Letgo, which is uh, owned by Naspers. And continue to invest heavily, uh, and monetization is just not a high priority. But I would say, you know, that's one, you know, one company uh, of of many, and and uh, I certainly feel that uh, for you know, if we're going to really back one of those outsize outcomes that has a chance of being a kind of a hundred billion dollar outcome, you know, some of those network effect companies, you know, we we need to be better at you know, recognizing them and funding them, you know, despite the fact that they're not monetizing at, at, at the time. If you were in a room with founders where nobody else would be hearing, I know this is a tricky question because everybody's going to be listening to this, yeah. but if you were in a room where, let's say, you were not with your Eight Roads hat on and the question came up about a European network effect business or maybe a marketplace where there was unfocused activities that would yield potential cash flow that would get the company to the point where it might have more leverage when going fundraising, but could potentially distract itself and therefore take a little longer to get to product market fit. Would you encourage the company to pursue those things considering how hard it is to fundraise in Europe and considering how few options there are for those kinds of businesses? Or would you continue or promote the more traditional venture advice, which is focus, burn, get to the right quantum, and then go raise from one or two key players, but run the risk that they might not get it, and then they're stuck with no way to sustain themselves? The, the key for different founders is to ask themselves, what, what, what is the right capital to tap into? And I would say today, the good news for entrepreneurs in Europe and around the world is there's enough smart capital that recognizes what is the right way forward for certain businesses. So what I would encourage the, the, the European entrepreneur is you know, focus on the right funds who understand your business model. I mean, if you, you know, in the case of Treatwell, for example, you know, Lopo knew exactly 
the kind of people who knew who understood marketplace businesses and we you know we're tracking them quite carefully so the the one thing that I would recommend to the to the entrepreneur is say just you know find the person not even just the fund but the person who understands the kind of business you're trying to build and they will always do the right thing or hopefully you know most usually will do the right thing um, and that that found, you know that investor might not be the one who's right next door at that event you know it could actually be someone uh, uh, so you know working through the networks and making sure that you actually identify that the right person I think is pretty critical because in those early days I, I think you're absolutely right um, you know making the right the wrong call can actually be very costly mm. you know very costly I mean do you think that we're in an era now where that there needs to be more cash flow positive businesses uh, as opposed to sort of the traditional sort of grow fast go go big because one of the things that is increasingly obvious to founders is that their US counterparts are raising more money and they feel that the sort of zero to one strategy is one that they're inherently going to lose if another competitor raises two or three times the amount of money in the US and then can just buy out ads and buy out customers at a loss knowing that the li lifetime value will be made up over a period of time how do you how do you recommend Founders should think through that. You know, do they do they optimize for just capital positive and keep it linear or exponential at a huge cost, but at a disadvantage in terms of your war chest? You know, again, um, there, there are a couple of things to consider. On one hand, from a long-term perspective, you know, the way that you value a business is you, you kind of look at it the long-term the ability to generate cash flow and you discount it at some rate. I mean, you know, we all kind of studied the same courses in terms of discounted cash flow analysis. The um, so that on one hand, I think is is something that even the startup founders should at some point recognize that you know when you look at the Facebook and how it's being valued today, is it's building val valued on its ability to generate future cash flows. At the same time, different markets have different dynamics. And you know, the last thing you want to do is in the market where there are network effects and where the, you know it's a winner take winner takes all or winner takes most markets, say marketplaces for you know food delivery or something like that. I mean the last thing you want to do right is uh, if the if the if the you know if the game is the number one takes eighty percent plus of the of the bounty, be the one who is kind of defending sort of a local position and trying to get the cash flow break even. So I think there is, uh, uh, there is quite a bit of strategy that needs to go into thinking about, you know, what kind of market am I in? Am I in a market where there's long-term going to only be one competitor or two competitors? Are they, you know, intrinsically monopolistic markets, even though we not, wouldn't call it that? Uh, um, and then there are many other markets where, you know, you can coexist with four other competitors and have you know, quite a, quite a, call it a, a successful existence, right? I mean, you know, you have Oracle selling software and Microsoft and a number of startups and they're all selling, call it, you know, CRM software. So they're all doing fine. So one, one thing that I, that I oftentimes find is for the founders, the, the, the pressure is really to understand what kind of market am I in and what are the competitive dynamics and what are the long-term competitive dynamics so that I know is money going to be a differentiator for the long term if I can get to the clear number one? Or is it actually not such a, cre uh, a, a clear objective and I can, 
you know, I can just bootstrap my way to, to a successful company. But the risk with that is that you have companies that never get started in Europe because the analysis would yield that it is a winner-take-all. And in order to be the winner-take-all, you need to have a, a war chest that most people cannot raise in Europe. So take a food delivery company, not Deliveroo specifically, but one that is a vertically integrated kitchen mm -hmm. kind of yeah. thing. You know, In the US, there's like three or four or five players. One of them recently yesterday raised the seven million round. Mm -hmm. You couldn't even raise that here in Europe. So that means that that business has two, one of two potential strategies. One strategy is to have every single node be inherently profitable and then use the cash flow from that profit to be able to expand organically, slowly, leaving yourself open for competitors to come in. Or you burn capital really quickly the way that a US one would in hopes that some other VC will catch you down the road and, and you're effectively maybe relying on a series of drip-fed larger rounds which add up to the aggregate US round that your competitor raised, or you don't start the business at all, but then you lose out on that innovation. So what kind of advice do you give for founders or what kind of view do you have on founders being dealt with those kinds of circumstances in Europe where perhaps the rounds aren't as large in the US? Is it literally a don't even bother? Look, you know, the one, the one thing that I... Um you know, going back to sort of my, my entrepreneurial experience and, and one thing I've learned is as a founder, you know, you have to be so committed and passionate about your particular problem you're trying to solve is that, um, you know, every company is different. You cannot generalize and say, because X is doing this, it's never going to work for anybody else. Um, or say, you know, because Y isn't doing this, then we should never do it. So these generalizations, I think, the beauty of entrepreneurship is every founder has a chance. Um, the question that presents itself is, is, so what is the right way forward? And all of the strategies that you've explained, they, they all might work in different instances. Um, to just a priori say, listen, because U.S. companies raise more money and hence we, we can't be as successful. I mean, look at Just Eat and Grubhub. Right? I mean, Just Eat today, I haven't tracked the, the, the valuation, but I think it's a bigger company today in, in terms of valuation for sure than, than Grubhub in the U.S. And that just speaks as a testament to the fact that, you know, Just Eat never so said, well, you know, if those guys are doing it that way, then we're never going to be able to do it right. They went and they raised, you know, money and they actually built it. You, know, you might remember, you know, in Denmark, I mean, they built it into a very, very profitable business before they started expanding. Uh, and today, you know, Just Eat is, is, is one of the, you know, you know, soon to be hopefully $10 billion companies in the European ecosystem. So um, I think it, everything's possible and, and every situation warrants a slightly different potentially approach. Hmm. How do you work with your companies therefore on inter internationalization? What different approaches do you take what are the ones that are maybe best practices? I know that it's hard to generalize, but let's create a fictitious scenario. A lot of companies that are born in the UK naturally have the question, do I go to the US as my next market? And from the hat that you wear, which is checks that are significantly larger, is that the moment when they go to the US or is that the moment when they go to Germany because it's closer or you know, some you know, Ireland or, or somewhere else? You know, like you say, I mean, there's no, you know, one size fits all type uh, approaches. I think, you know, we, we have a lot of debates even, you know, internally in our partnership about what exactly should be the right strategic move for certain companies. Um, 
you know, for some companies like Good Data, which is our cloud business intelligence uh, software company, uh, Roman, the founder, moved from Prague already at Series A. He's a he's a third time entrepreneur, and he moved from Prague to the Valley with effectively all of his team, uh, but for engineering, kind of at the Series A. So we raised money uh, with, with General Catalyst and Andreessen Horowitz, and. Today, the company actually looks and feels very, very American, even though all the engineering is still in, in Prague. Neo is, the, you know, Emil, the CEO, moved. Uh, some of our sales and marketing capabilities are there. Uh, but again, there's probably more center of gravity in, in Sweden still. Um, so again, they took a, you know, a slightly different approach. Uh, their conclusion being that um, there is a market they want to tap into in the in the in the US but if you think about good data they sell a lot into other cloud providers so Roman felt he needed to be in the valley because that's where all the cloud uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, explosion was happening five years ago for Neo it's probably a little bit more balanced their customers in Europe their customers in the US um, then we have AppsFlyer out of Israel and the CEO still sits uh, in Israel, and all the product management, all the tech, um, it's so, so, so really the, 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 the heavy-duty core is still in Israel, and we have 13 offices around the world which predominantly focus on sales and marketing. And again, there, again, the, the, the strong thesis that Oren had was that, uh, you know, Asia was just as important of a market for him as U.S. Today, you know, Asia is over 50% of his revenues. And so he felt that by staying in Israel, he wasn't going to sort of bias the business towards, uh, 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 you know, focusing on, 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 on the U.S. solely. And, you know, the company has done really well in the U.S., but it's also done really well in some of the other company, uh, countries. So, uh, you know, probably answering question in a sort of a, uh, in a slightly more nuanced way, but it, it definitely depends on the kind of company uh, that, you, that, that we're talking about. Mm. And what have you been, what, what have you seen as the, the key hire that, or the key transition point for internationalization? Is, uh, is it almost always, I know you mentioned that the founder of an Israeli company stayed in Israel, but have you found that there is a, a critical need for the founders to move? Or have you found that, it, generally speaking, you can get away with having a founder remain and then you have a sales yeah. force or a VP of engineering or one of the co-founders? Yeah. How, what have you seen as the best practices there? I mean, I'm a big fan of founders committing. If, if say, say U.S. is a critical market, I'm a fan of founders committing themselves to that market by actually exploring moving there if need be. But if need be, so if it's if it's really rational to do it, to 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 make that commitment, um, you know, sometimes uh, um, the, the real difficult part about actually hiring into new offices is is to try to recreate the essence of your company in a new market that you have no presence. So uh, I think the, the for, for companies like AppSlyer, where I feel like we have been able to set up uh, uh, remote locations and not have the founder move there every time you know you open a new market, the, one of the things that's been critical for us is really integrating those, those offices with the, with the core. And the, uh, uh, so to give you an example, so, so, so AppSlyer run, runs their academy in Israel where everybody who gets hired into the company, irrespective of the location, 
needs to basically spend time in Israel, getting to know the culture, getting to know the people, going through sort of certain training programs, and then going back to their home home market. And uh, it's been it's been just critical in ensuring that again, as a company scales from 40 to north of 200 people, that everyone still continues to you know subscribe to the same values, to the same mission, to the same uh, uh, strategy. Mm. Um, so uh, uh, again, there are different ways to do it. Uh, but really, it's about kind of maintaining that, uh, uh, you know, the, the same DNA that, that made you successful in the first place. Mm. And it's much, much harder, I think, to do it when you have, you know, multiple locations. Mm. Well, we always like to wrap up with fun questions uh, a little bit that showcase, you know, who you are as a person. And one of the ones I really love is what's something you used to strongly believe that you now think you were fundamentally misguided about? I mean, I think as a VC, I, 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 would, I would have to say money. Um, I think uh, for the longest period of time, you know, uh, uh, maybe when we start uh, as, as young munchkins in, in the industry, you think, you know, money is something that, and people tell you, you know, it's a dissatisfier, but not a satisfier. I certainly say now that, you know, some of the, some of the outcomes and exits uh, that we've had, the, 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 the feel-good factor of having worked with companies and seeing them grow up from small to large, oftentimes beats any any kind of a financial return that you can that you can have from those 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 experiences. Excellent. If you had to teach someone one thing, what would you teach? Definitely perseverance. Um, you know, entrepreneurship and and life in general. I think you know uh, uh, we oftentimes celebrate. You know massive outcomes and successes and um, you know if I look at InnoGames uh, the guys dropped out of school in 2003 to do this startup and you know 2016 13 years later they actually have you know an amazing press release to, to, to send to their employees and so on and so forth you know it's 13 years of sweat and then all overnight everyone's just sort of saying oh, yeah those guys you know they, they're so successful of course um, but the trials and tribulations that an entrepreneur goes through in those 13 years is just amazing. And, and so I, I would just say, uh, just assume things will go wrong and then build your plan uh, in life and in, 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 you know, in, in business, assuming things will go wrong every day. Excellent. Well, with that, thanks for joining us, Tavor. Uh, it was a pleasure having you here and hearing your story and reliving some of those moments from the early days. And so until next time, guys, bye. Thank you.